We read the Holy Scriptures together today in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, 
I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We read the word of God that far. We consider together the first two verses of the chapter. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this latter part of the epistle to the Hebrews, we find some of the most wonderful and edifying passages in all of Scripture concerning the subject of faith. We find in this last part of the epistle, for example, in chapter 10, the exhortations Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We find also in chapter 10 that great gospel promise quoted from the book of Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith. And the assertion that we who do not draw back from Jesus Christ belong to those who believe unto the saving of our souls. Then in chapter 11, we find that beautiful and inspiring catalog of saints that have lived before us, that lived before the apostle, all of whom are said to have lived by faith. By faith, they lived. By faith, they obeyed God. By faith, they suffered tribulation. By faith, they died. 
And yet, chapter 11 tells us that although they saw all of these promises, yet they did not receive them. But they were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers in the earth. But they did not receive yet the content of the promises until the Lord Jesus Christ came. On this occasion of the public confession of faith of our brother Michael, on which he has declared to God and in our presence that he stands with that great company of saints. He stands with that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And with them he resolves by the grace of God to live and die by faith. We pray that God will use the preaching of this text to encourage our brother and all of us to give earnest heed to this exhortation which comes at the conclusion of chapter 11 and that long catalog of saints. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, Running the Race Set Before Us. We notice, first of all, running with endurance. Secondly, looking unto Jesus. And finally, surrounded by witnesses. Whereas throughout the Holy Scriptures, we find that the Christian life is compared to many different things. It is compared, for example, to someone who is a pilgrim or a stranger on a journey through the wilderness of this world, on his way to the heavenly city. It is compared to a sailor who is on a ship sailing through the troubled and stormy seas of this world on his way to the eternal shores of heaven. It is compared to a soldier who is in the battle of faith against the spiritual forces of darkness. But now here in our text, the scriptures compare the Christian life to the running of a race. The Christian life is compared to an athletic contest which requires great effort, great determination, great stamina and resilience, running with patience the race that is set before us. The Greek word for race in our text originally referred to the stadiums that could be found throughout the empire of that time, and there were many stadiums. Inside those stadiums, athletic contests of many different kinds would take place. There was a field, and there was a track around that field, and there was an audience that could observe the athletic contests of track and field and other sorts that took place in the stadium. And therefore, that word came to refer sometimes to the actual contest. And from our text, we can see that it is referring to the specific contest 
of a foot race. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We have to understand this afternoon that we who have been baptized into the Christian church, we who have publicly confessed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are not the spectators who are sitting in the stands of the stadium watching the athletes down on the field, but we are the ones down on the field. We are the ones on the racetrack. We are the ones running the race. We have been chosen by the Lord of this race, the Lord of this stadium, to run this race. He has chosen us even before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. And he has placed us on the racetrack. And he has fired off the gun so that we have begun to run the race. And now we are in the midst of the race, running the race, but we have not yet come to the finish line. We are athletes running in a race, pressing toward the mark. Now what is this race? I said it is a picture of the Christian life. It is a picture of the whole course of life that stretches out before us from the moment when we are born again and become believers in Jesus Christ by the grace of God until that day when we depart from the racetrack, when we cross the finish line and are taken up into heavenly glory. That's the race. That race includes our entire life as Christians. It includes every aspect and every stage of life. We are running that race already when we are little children, if we have been born again already. We are running the race of the Christian life. We are running it throughout that period of adolescence and young adulthood when many important decisions are made about our future. We're running that race when we become adults. And we're still running that race when we become older members of the church until the day when the Lord calls us home. And this race includes and involves all of the many duties and responsibilities and callings that the Lord Jesus Christ places upon us as his disciples. And in every stage of life, there are a variety of duties. When we are children, there is the duty to honor our father and mother, and still when we are young people. But then there is the duty of going to school and studying and applying ourselves to all that we are called to do. And then we have the duty of doing everything to the best of our ability in college, or if we go right into our job or career. And throughout the whole time of our life when we're going to work, whether we are an employer or an employee, we have a variety of duties that we are called to do. If the Lord is pleased that we remain single for a time, we have a calling to run the race as a single person. But if the Lord brings us a husband or a wife, then we have a new calling to run the race as a married person. If the Lord gives us children, we have the calling to run that race as a mother in the home, raising our little ones. 
or as a father protecting and providing for our family and leading them spiritually. We have the calling when we retire from our work because of the infirmities of old age to continue to make good use of our time and to be good examples to those younger than us that they may follow in our footsteps and to share our wisdom with the younger generation. In all the stages of life and in all of the duties that fall upon us, there are always two great duties. The running of the race involves loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves in all aspects of life. As we're running down the race of our life in all of these stages and aspects and duties, there are obstacles that need to be hurdled. There are giant things, stones and rocks in our way that we have to jump over. And there are adversaries who attack us from the sides of the racetrack, trying to push us off the course, trying to trip us so that we will stumble and fall. And then... This is a race that never ends. And therefore, it is a race that is on rain or shine. There is no break for the weather in this race. And sometimes the sun is shining brightly and things are going well. And life is good, but sometimes the rain starts to fall. Maybe a sprinkle. Maybe it becomes a downpour. Maybe it starts to hail down upon us as God sends trials and chastenings into our life. The Apostle exhorts us, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In the running of this race, the Apostle exhorts us to set aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us Now, if you would imagine a world-class runner who is ready for a big race and he comes to the stadium and he comes to the starting point of the race, he would not dream of coming to that race with huge heavy weights hanging around his shoulders and with a long cumbersome robe from his shoulders down to his toes. Because that wise runner knows that if he's carrying these weights, it's going to slow him down. And if he's wearing a robe like that, no doubt he will trip over it and stumble and fall. And it will present a great disadvantage in the running of the race. And yet, we come to this race in precisely that manner. We come to the starting point of this race weighed down by heavy weights, and sometimes we take more weights upon ourselves. We come to this race with long, distracting, cumbersome robes of sin that need to be taken off. Because we're running this race not in a perfect and ideal world, as Adam and Eve did originally, but we live in the fallen world. We live in the cursed world. We live in a world in which we have been born and conceived in sin. 
Every one of us has come into the world as totally depraved sinners who are inclined to all sin, who are unable to resist every temptation, and who are inclined to make use of all of the good creatures of God's world for sin. And so the Apostle exhorts us to run the race, laying aside these weights and these robes which hold us back. It's true that as Christians, we have been justified in Christ. So that in Christ, we are righteous, fully and perfectly righteous. It's true also that we have been regenerated by the Spirit. So that we have in us a new life. Nevertheless, we still carry with us our old sinful flesh as we're running the race. And so the Apostle exhorts us, first of all, to lay aside the weights. Now, what are those weights? The weights are not necessarily sins that cleave to us, because the second thing he mentions is to lay aside the sin that besets us. The weights that he is talking about can refer to a a wide variety of things, things which are not inherently sinful. They can refer to the good creatures of God's world, such as riches and a nice home and a nice car and a television and computer and all kinds of technology. These weights can refer to the many different apps we download on our phones, the Spotify and YouTube and all the rest, and can refer to our hobbies, whether we like to go fishing or or golfing or hunting or whatever our hobbies might be. It can refer to good gifts of food and drink. But these are things which become weights to us, heavy burdens that slow us down from running the race when they start to distract us from our duties, when they distract us from what is most important in life, when they take our eyes off of the Lord as the God of our chief joy, whom we are called to love more than anything else, when these things become an obsession to us, when we become addicted to them, when we develop habits of enjoying these things and indulging in God's good gifts, so that we neglect our marriage, we neglect our children, we neglect the church and the Christian school, because we're so consumed with things which are not wrong in themselves, but they become weights. The apostle says, if it is a weight in your life, and only you can know if it is or not, then lay it aside. Let it go. Give it up. Yes, you may have the Christian liberty to enjoy those things. But there are some things which we have the liberty to enjoy, which we willingly give up because we recognize they're slowing me down in living the Christian life. So that, first of all, the wise runner recognizes when something is a heavy weight and he takes it off his shoulders and lays it aside so he can run faster. And in the second place, the apostle says, Lay aside the sin which doth so easily beset us. 
The sins which easily beset us, which we sometimes call besetting sins, based on the English translation in the King James Version here, are like that cumbersome robe. Imagine going into a race wearing a long, thick, heavy robe that goes down to your feet. How foolish. So the apostle says, take off that robe. You can't run with that. Lay aside those besetting sins. A besetting sin is a sin that has become a habit in our life. A sin that has become a deeply ingrained way of life for us. So that sometimes we don't even recognize it as a sin anymore. We can become deceived by our besetting sins. They are the sins that are constantly tripping us up, constantly ensnaring us, constantly entangling us, just like that robe. So that we're tripping, struggling, falling on the racetrack constantly. A besetting sin, for example, is a proud attitude that we might allow to exist inside our souls, that because of our wealth, or because of our achievements in life, or because of our wisdom and understanding, or because of our beauty, we are somehow better than other people. A besetting sin can be a pattern of fear. When the Lord calls us not to be afraid, but to put our trust in him, that we allow ourselves to become consumed with fears and anxieties and worries so that it becomes a way of life. It can be a pattern of anger that whenever things don't go our way, we have the habit of responding with anger and yelling and lashing out. It can be a pattern of gossip or backbiting in which we find ourselves constantly talking about other people behind their backs, and not saying good things. It can be a habit of making use of good gifts, food and drink, beer and wine, entertainment, and other things, which are not in and of themselves evil, but becoming so dependent upon them for our happiness in our day-to-day life that they become our idols. They ensnare us. We depend upon them. Those are besetting sins. The apostle says, you can't run with those. If you try to run while clinging to those robes of sin, you're going to trip and fall again and again and again and make little progress in the Christian life. The apostle says we are to run this race with patience. The word patience in the text could be translated endurance. Usually we think of patience in other contexts. But in the context of running a race, he's talking about perseverance, resilience, stamina. Run with endurance. A serious runner in a race spends a lot of time training, bringing his body into subjection so that he is fit, he is trim, he is ready to run To the best of his ability, he exercises so that he can exert himself on the racetrack. The Lord calls us to do likewise when he says to run with patience. 
He's calling us to train, to exercise, so that we can exert ourselves in this difficult race of the Christian life. When the apostle says to run with endurance, what he's saying is don't give up when the going gets tough. Don't give up when the rain starts to fall and to pour down upon you in the form of trials and troubles and challenges in your life. Don't give up. Don't quit the race when there are obstacles in front of you that seem too big for you to hurdle. Don't stop running when adversaries like the devil and his host tempt you and the temptations seem so strong that you don't feel you're able to avoid them and resist them. He says, run with patience, with endurance. Persevere. Keep running. Don't stop running until you reach the finish line. Keep on running when you feel exhausted, when you feel worn out by the difficulties of life, by the challenges of fulfilling your callings. Don't give up. Keep on running. Persevere. Run the race. This is a theme that we find throughout the epistles. We find it in Philippians 3, verse 14, where Paul says, Let us press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Temperate. Moderate. He is not indulgent. He keeps his body in subjection, Paul says. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, referring to another game of boxing in the Olympics. Not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. So he says, just like in the games of track and field, you must train. You must keep your desires your inclinations under control. You must discipline yourself so that you can run with endurance the race. Let us run the race looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we hear what it means to run the race, we may feel even more incapable, and we ought to feel even more incapable of running this race. How am I going to run this race? How am I going to summon the energy, the strength, the stamina to keep running this difficult race? And the apostle says, look unto Jesus. Let us run the race, brothers and sisters in Christ, not looking unto ourselves, not looking unto what is within us, 
One of the great mottos of our day is believe in yourself. You have what it takes inside yourself to live your life to the full. That's what they tell us. Don't do that. Don't believe in yourself. Don't trust in yourself. Don't look inside yourself and say, yes, yes, I have what it takes. I have the strength. The strength of my own legs, the strength of my own feet can carry me down this track to the finish line. I have the strength. I have the willpower. I have the determination. I have the stamina. I can do this. Let us run the race, brothers and sisters, not trusting in ourselves as if our salvation depends on our own strength, as if the victory, the crown, and the glory depend upon us, depend upon our running and our crossing of the finish line. Let us not run the race looking at all of the trials and challenges of the racetrack focusing our eyes on the rain that's pouring down and the giant obstacles in our way, the adversaries running across the track. Remember the children of Israel when they came to the promised land and the ten spies brought back an evil report and said, we cannot enter the land of Canaan because there are large walled cities there And there are giants there, the sons of Anak. There's no way we will be able to win the battles and defeat the Canaanites and take the city. And their hearts melted with fear. It was the fear of unbelief. They didn't trust that the Lord would give them the victory. You remember Peter in that boat in the sea when the storm came and Jesus walked on the water out to the ship and Peter said, Lord, let me come out and walk on the sea as well. And the Lord said, come. And he stepped out of the ship with his eyes on Jesus. But for a moment, he took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the darkness and he felt the wind blowing. He saw the waves surging and he began to sink. That's what happens when we look at our challenges and focus on the obstacles and when we focus on ourselves. Let us run this race looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. You see what the apostle is teaching us there? He's telling us to look at Jesus because Jesus ran this race before us. And he finished it. Jesus came into the world and took on the role of Messiah. And in that role of Messiah, he ran the race that God set before him. He ran that race. And for the joy that was set before him, that joy that was set before Jesus does not refer to the joy that he gave up 
the joy that he formerly had in heaven, but that he gave up in order to endure the cross, as some people explain the text. But the joy refers rather to the joy that was set before him, the joy of glory in heaven, the joy of that crown that God would give to him. And as Jesus focused on that joy, he was able to run the race set before him. He was able to lay aside every weight. He was a man just like you and me. Those earthly pleasures and treasures were a temptation to him as well, but he laid them aside. He laid them aside. And as the adversaries came and tempted him, he resisted every temptation. And he kept running. He kept running. He never stopped running as the rain of God's wrath poured down upon him. He ran and ran and ran with his eyes on the joy and the crown. And as he ran that race, he came at last to the cross. The greatest obstacle, the greatest challenge was the cross. The cross which represented that cruel form of punishment that the Romans used to utterly humiliate a criminal by stripping off his clothes and nailing him in a cruel torture to this wooden beam. He endured that cross. He endured all the sufferings leading up to it as they pressed a crown of thorns upon his brow and as they scourged his blessed back. He endured it as they led him out to Golgotha and pounded the nails through his hands and feet into the cross and lifted him up between two thieves. He endured the cross, not only in those visible earthly sufferings, but he also endured the deeper spiritual meaning of the cross, which was the curse of God Almighty. He endured the curse of God that we deserve for our sins. He allowed and received upon himself the curse word of God's judgment that pressed him down into the hellish agony that we deserve for our sins. And all the while, he despised the shame. He despised the shame, not as a cocky young person might despise those who mock him, but he despised the shame as someone who refused to allow anything to stop him from running that race to the end. I mean, they were spitting in his face. They were buffeting him. They were condemning him. They were laying charges against him that he didn't do. They bloodied up his back. They put him on the cross. They humiliated him. He didn't deserve any of that. And there, as he hung on the cross, people passing by on the road had the gall to mock him, to revile him. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he despised all that shame. 
And that was not the worst of it. The worst shame was the utter humiliation that he had to experience for our shameful sins. The sins that we commit are shameful. We deserve to be put to shame, to be utterly disgraced before the whole world and before God, and that for all eternity. He took that shame upon himself and despised it. That is, he said, this shame I take, I don't refuse, I will suffer it to the end. He ran the race that was set before him for you, for me. He ran that race that we couldn't run. That race of perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and suffering of the wrath of God to the very end. And having crossed the finish line, when he said, it is finished, he sprang out of the grave And the apostle says, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He received his joy. He received his crown. He finished his race. He obtained salvation for us. That's why the apostle says, let us run the race that is set before us, not looking here, but looking there. Not looking here where there is no strength, but looking there to the one who showed us that he had all the strength that we didn't have, who finished the race, who accomplished salvation. And now there he is, if you want to know, where do I look to him? How do I look to Jesus? As I'm running down the racetrack, you don't look to the right, you don't look to the left, you don't look behind you or at the ground. You look in front of you. You look at the finish line. That's where he is. Sitting there at the right hand of the throne of God. Smiling down at us. And beckoning us to come. Come to me. Run to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Let us run the race, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Some translate the text, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, instead of the author and finisher of our faith. And some interpreters mean by that, that Jesus was the perfect and greatest example of faith. Jesus had faith. Jesus ran by faith. And Jesus sets an example of faith for us to follow. And therefore, we are to look to Jesus. We are to follow his example. We are to see how he, looking at the joy before him, endured the cross. And we are to do likewise. And there's truth to that. Others explain the text to mean that Jesus is the pioneer or the founder of the Christian faith. Meaning that Jesus, by his person and work, is and has done everything that forms the content and the foundation of our faith. 
What are we to believe? Look to Jesus. Believe what Jesus has done, the Christian faith. That's true too. But I think the proper translation is the one we have in our own version. And that's a very beautiful teaching that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. You see, one of the things that might trouble us as we're running down the track is, how am I going to persevere in this faith? When there are so many things that make me afraid, so many things that make me doubt and fear, Will I be able to persevere in my faith when persecution comes? Would I be able to persevere in my faith if I lost everything? And so the apostle says, don't worry about those things. Run and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus is the author of your faith, not you. You are not the author of your faith. You are not the one who decided by your own free will to be a believer, to choose and accept Jesus into your life, to choose to be one of the runners in this race, to choose to go to heaven. If your life is a book, and you can think of your life as a book, and my life, you are not the author of that book. Jesus is the author of the book of your life. And Jesus authors that book as a life of faith. If you are a child of God, if you are a believer, Jesus is the author of that faith. That means that Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, has poured his Holy Spirit into your heart and changed you so that you who were an unbeliever and could only be an unbeliever have been changed into a believer. And it doesn't mean that Jesus somehow forces us to believe Jesus works in a most mysterious manner through his spirit so that he sweetly and powerfully moves us through the preaching of the gospel so that when we hear Christ preached, we say, I believe. I believe in that Jesus. I trust in that Jesus. And I will follow him. Jesus is the author of that faith. But that's not all. He's also the finisher. Because he who begins a good work also brings it to perfection. He doesn't stop halfway. Jesus doesn't just fire the gun at the starting line and say, and give us a good push and say, there, I've helped you. Now you have to do the rest. He's the author and the finisher. That means that he perfects our faith through all the storms and trials and challenges and adversaries of life. Sometimes our faith grows weak and he strengthens it. Sometimes we become afraid and he comforts us. Sometimes we lose hope and he gives us hope. 
He preserves our faith to the very end. That's why he says, let us run looking unto Jesus, because all our salvation depends on him alone. You see, we don't run this race in order to merit our place in heaven. We don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. We don't strive to fulfill our duties as a single person, as a married person, as a father, as a mother, in the hopes and with the motivations of trying to earn something from God, to earn that crown. That's not why we do it. If we do, then that thought that we have is actually one of the heaviest possible weights that we could be carrying. How could we know ever in this life if we've run the race hard enough, good enough, fast enough to win and receive the crown? We could never know. That's not why we run the race, but we run the race as those who have already received salvation in principle, in beginning, and those who hold to the promise that when we cross the finish line, Jesus will give us the fullness of that salvation, and therefore we run with gratitude with thankfulness and joy in love for him who first loved us. And that's why the burden of running this race is light. Come to me, Jesus says. Run to me. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Finally, let us be encouraged by that great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. The apostle begins the text saying that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And that is meant to serve as an encouragement to us, an inspiration to us, to keep running the race. A cloud in the sky is what? a dense gathering together of many, many billions of water vapor molecules. That cloud is a figure of speech for a great crowd of people. And as we apply that now to the image of the stadium and the racetrack, we know who that great crowd of witnesses is all the people sitting in the stands around the racetrack who are watching us and cheering for us. That's the great cloud of witnesses. In the ancient stadiums, those could be packed full of people. And down on the field, the runners are going around the track, but up above, almost like a cloud surrounding the track, was this great crowd of people cheering and shouting their favorite runner to encourage him on his way. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses 
a great multitude of saints. And that great crowd of saints are the believers who have gone before us. Many of whom are listed in chapter 11. The chapter on the great heroes of faith. Those heroes of faith are like so many witnesses or spectators. They are not our rivals. They are not competitors with us on the racetrack. People who are getting in our way as we're trying to run or people who are trying to beat us to the finish line. But this great cloud of witnesses refers to the saints who have gone before us who are now sitting in the stands watching us, cheering for us, encouraging us. That great cloud of witnesses refers to Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. It refers to Moses and to David, to Gideon and Jephthah, and to all of the saints mentioned in the previous chapter and many others who are not mentioned. It refers to to all the great saints throughout church history leading up to this present time. It refers to your own God-fearing grandfathers and grandmothers who have passed into glory. It refers to those spiritual mentors and teachers and ministers who have already passed into heaven. They are a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us who are still here on the earth, cheering us on. They're a cloud of witnesses. And that Greek word for witness is martyr. And it points out the fact that some of these witnesses were martyrs for the faith. They actually suffered and died for their faith. They are part of that great cloud of witnesses People like Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. The great reformers who were burned at the stake during the Reformation. Their blood cries out from the ground and cheers us on to walk in their footsteps. We don't know if the apostle means to say that these witnesses in heaven are actually able to look down from heaven, as it were, and and are actually watching us. But in terms of the figure, in terms of the illustration of the text, they are the people in the stands, around the track, watching, witnessing, cheering. They have finished their races. They have crossed the finish line. They are now in heavenly glory. And they speak to us from the pages of Holy Scripture. You can read chapter 11 maybe in your private devotions tonight and remind yourself of that great cloud of witnesses and how they're cheering you on. Just a few examples. Abel, he cheers for you. And he cheers for me and he says, Brothers and sisters in Christ who live thousands of years after me, look unto the Lamb of God who shed his blood for you on the cross and keep your eyes on him even as I offered a more excellent sacrifice than my brother Cain. And Enoch, he cheers to us and says, Brethren down there below, walk with the Lord your God by faith and he will translate you out of this life into glory just as he did for me. 
Noah, building his ark by faith, cries out to us and says, Brethren, prepare yourselves for things not seen as yet, because there will be one last great catastrophe at the end of the world in which God will destroy the whole world with fire. Prepare yourselves and prepare your families spiritually. And Abraham, who was called to go out into a place that he should receive as an inheritance, he says, Brethren, runners, when God calls you, you go, obey, obey your God and follow him wherever he leads you. You are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. Look for that city which has foundations. Look for that heavenly city. And finally, we conclude with Paul, the great apostle, who in one of his final epistles wrote to Timothy, I have fought a good fight. The word fight is the same Greek word translated race in our text. I have fought a good fight. I have run a good race. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us run the race with patience, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank thee for the exhortation of the text. We thank thee for painting a beautiful picture for us, that we may have an understanding of who we are and what we are doing here in this earth. We give thanks that thou hast given unto us the gift of faith. And we pray for our brother who has confessed his faith today, that he would run the race set before him. And may we all be refreshed and encouraged to run the race that is set before us too. And Lord, give us hope for that great day when we will receive our crown.